Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Emma Hunter about her 2015 book, Political Thought and the Public Sphere in Tanzania, Freedom, Democracy, and Citizenship in the Era of Decolonization, published by Cambridge University Press as part of their African Studies series. The book was winner of the 2016 RHS Gladstone Prize and a finalist for the Bethel Oy Ogod Price. Dr. Hunter is a senior lecturer in African history at the University of Edinburgh and a co-director of the Edinburgh Center for Global History. Dr. Hunter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I wonder if we could uh, start the interview by um, hearing a little bit about how about yourself, you know, how, how you came to be a historian. <laughs> how I came to be a historian. Um, well, um, I suppose I, am, I came to be a historian like many people, a, a little bit by chance. Um, I decided to, I grew up in Edinburgh, uh, in Scotland. I was very interested in, in politics um, and uh, in the changing world around me. And I thought that the best way to understand um, societies we live in, the political questions that were being debated, um, was through a historical approach, so decided to, to study history at, at university. Um, and I came to African history specifically, um, again, um, really in, in some ways by chance. So people often ask if I have a family connection um, to Africa or if this was a, a long-standing interest. Um, but in fact, I came to African history actually towards the end of my undergraduate degree uh, in history. Um, And I came to African history via a novel, um, which is a novel called The Poisonwood Bible um, by Barbara Kingsilver, um, which I'd been given as a gift um, and uh, started to read and discovered that it um, somehow conjured up in a really incredibly um, powerful way what it meant to live through the last years of colonialism and to be part of the project of building, um, well, of of claiming freedom, but then of of building a a post-colonial future. Um, And having read that book, I um, changed my uh, subject options for the final year and uh, decided to to study African history and um, have been doing so ever since. Good. And so, and how did you come to write this book, um, Political Thought and the Public Sphere in Tanzania? How did this book came to well, life? How did it come to life? Um, what well, a long process um, that, that took me from that um, moment of, uh, of, of discovering uh, an interest in, in African history, which was summer of 2001 um, to, to 2015 when it was finally published. Um, so the reason I got so excited um, about uh African history at, at that point um, was that um, I was struck by what happened when we went back to the 1950s and could see the possibilities that were open um, to people at that time. And at that time, insofar as I'd encountered the history of uh, nationalist movements and the birth of the post-colonial state, it was as uh, a narrative of the rise of nationalist movements, followed by the disappointments of the post-colonial state. And everything seemed to be sort of moving towards or tending towards this 
this sense of disappointment of uh, of promise not fulfilled. So I struggle with what happened when we go back to the fifties, um, almost w- without knowing what happens next, and look at what people were talking about. What did freedom mean for them? Um, what kind of new possibilities uh, did independence offer? In Coming to African history, I came to African history and to these, these particular interests in African history um, at a time when um, I was also studying the history of political thought and I was also um, interested in and, and researching um, the history of nationalism in 19th and 20th century Scotland. And so what I wanted to do was to develop a project, a research project that would enable me to apply um, the kinds of approaches that historians of political thought in uh, other parts of the world had um, developed and apply them to Africa in this period around decolonization in the period of the the 40s um, to the 60s so that we could see the kinds of arguments that were going on and that we might miss or that um, much of the existing historiography at that time I felt missed um, by focusing on the rise of nationalist movements and then uh, the birth of the post-colonial state. And so the origins of, of the book lie in in that um, intellectual project. But the form that it took, again, was um, in large part a, a process of contingencies um, and, uh, um, and various um, uh, attempts to find the best way to explore those questions in a way that, that would be meaningful um, and, and interesting. You're going in the right direction where I wanted to start heading, which is, you know, I mean, oftentimes when 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 we find a book, um, uh, one of the things that people don't get to see is how much uh, how much of it there was a plan and how much of it the, of the plan was dictated by either sources or circumstance. Um, so I guess that's where you were headed. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, absolutely. So, the, the question, the first question, of course, was which which case study um, to explore, and um, and Tanzania presented itself uh, as a really interesting case study because uh, Tanzania had a shared uh, language of print um, in that period, um, the the the, uh, the 40s to the 60s. Um, so, originally. Um, I'd thought about doing something comparative, Tanzania and Senegal, um, and then it, it narrowed down and became a study of Tanzania. Um, it's, so it started as a, uh, as, a, as a project really asking quite open questions um, and, and going to Tanzania with those questions in mind. Um, and it started out as a, as a doctoral project um, in the UK system. That's a three-year project, so um, there's not a lot of time to learn Swahili and, um, and, and uh, develop a project that, that can be done in that time. So I zeroed in on uh, two specific case studies within uh, Tanzania. Initially, um, Mwanza region around Lake Victoria, and then um, the region around, Lake Victoria, uh, region around Kilimanjaro in northeastern Tanzania. And so the PhD in the end was a study of uh, focusing on languages of politics in Kilimanjaro. But then for the book, I wanted to go back out again um, and to think about um, debate in a wider um, mainland Tanzania-wide public sphere. Um, And so um, the period from uh, writing the PhD, which uh, um, finished in 2007-8, and then writing this book, 
that was the, the time when I was able to, to, to go back out again um, and to think about the wider debates going on um, in Swahili language newspapers and periodicals um, and texts, um, as well as in, uh, to some extent, in, in, in archival um, sources in, uh, in Tanzania more broadly. Is there just a, a quick question with regards to, um, to this particular aspect of the sources? Uh, historiographically, I can see why focusing on the Swahili press and particularly like the the, the, the more regional and local uh, examples of this press uh, makes enormous amounts of sense since they, they, they haven't been explored um, to the same degree that other ones. But what are we um, sort of contrasting them? Is, was there an English uh, spoken press? Was there like a more central set of um, uh, newspapers and publications that, that sort of dominated uh, that in principle could have led us to believe this is the public sphere and then with you let let us understand that we've missed something behind it yeah so the, the 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 question of sort of how I came to newspapers um, was a slightly it was a slightly roundabout route. Um, so when I was first thinking about the project, some of the models that I had in mind um, from twentieth uh, century South Asian history had focused in on newspapers, and so I initially um, went looking for. Um, independent newspapers that, that could be a way into this project. Um, and initially, it looked as though this wasn't going to be a very promising way in. So um, in uh, Tanzania before independence, uh, mainland Tanzania, which is my focus, um, there were independent newspapers um, in the English language. Um, But there were very, um, those newspapers were particularly targeted at um, a, a settler population um, in the region. Um, and they had relatively little, I felt, um, to say about the kinds of things that I was interested in. And Tanzania is unusual in the region um, in that it didn't see the flourishing of an independent vernacular press in um, the first half of the 20th century. So in uh, Kenya in the 1920s, we see an incredibly vibrant Kikuyu language press um, continues until those newspapers are closed down in the period of um, the uh, emergency um, when um, public space, political space was, was heavily constrained um, by the colonial government in the 1950s. Um, and in Uganda, where there's again a very lively Luganda uh, language press. Um, in Tanzania, that wasn't the case. And people have sort of speculated on why that might be. Um, and one reason is that um, the uh, Swahili was used as a language of government and education, um, increasingly from the late 19th century onwards. Um, and so the sort of vernacular language publishing that we see elsewhere doesn't develop in quite the same way in, in Tanzania. Um, there was also a very tight censorship uh, regime, which made publishing very difficult. Um, and so it seemed on the face of it that, that newspapers were not going to be a productive way forward at all. Um, I actually came to, to newspapers a bit by chance in that uh, once I focused in on, um, on Kilimanjaro, um, I discovered there was a really fascinating uh, local 
district newspaper, um, which began publication in the early 50s and which continued publishing right up until um, the mid-1960s, up to 1967. So it crossed the the divide of independence. It goes um, starts before and, and goes on afterwards. So you can see how um, ideas are, are changing in, in that period. And this is the sort of newspaper which... Um, I initially thought would not be a terribly interesting newspaper to study um, because it was a district council newspaper. So it was published by the local council. Um, And I think more generally, historians had been um, quite wary of newspapers which were in the colonial period, which were missionary or government newspapers, um, given that they were obviously very tightly controlled and the content was very tightly controlled Um, and so they were not seen as as a space in which we could um, explore um, political ideas straightforwardly and so one of the things that I found myself doing initially was to to try to think about how we might use these sources whether these sources could in fact be more interesting than we originally perhaps thought and Increasingly, like others um, working in Tanzania, I've, I've come to to think of um, government and, and missionary periodicals in that period um, as um, much more interesting spaces for, for debate, um, though a particular kind of debate than was initially um, than, than it initially than it initially seemed to me. Um, so that's the sort of newspaper ecology, which is, is a slightly uh, unusual one um, for for the region. Um, and that obviously makes, you know, shapes the, 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 the kind of content that we see in those newspapers and what can and cannot be said. Um, but within those, uh, within that framework, um, I think they, they can tell us quite a lot about the, the kinds of topics that I was interested in in that book. And it is, um, can you tell us a little bit um, more, I mean, not just about the, you know, the sources now, but in general about the debates about, um, like you said at the beginning of, of your um, explanation, there's there was a narrative of nationalism, you know, which I often have thought about is a very theological narrative of nationalism, but there was this straight line that had it, you know, led us in this way. Uh, and what we have seen in recent years is that people are beginning to say, well, there wasn't, it wasn't quite a straight and it wasn't quite a line. Um, and, and we're trying to complicate that. There was a diversity of ideas. There was a diversity of projects. Um, so, and moreover, there's some, in one sense, there's this notion that all these, the political ideas, the, you know, nationalism, everything, all these political ideas like freedom and progress and these liberal ideas came to Africa from the outside, you know, that they were imported and Africans just like took them and run with them. Um, And it's obviously your your project is very much trying to complicate that narrative. How how do you came to, um, well, well, first of all, you know, understand that there was a problem with that, but, uh, (laughs) you know, and I imagine the sources had a lot to do with that, but um, but I think I think there's a, a really a really interesting project, an interesting problem in intellectual history that I sort of face myself oftentimes, which is how do we argue for the relevance of ideas that were arguably not successful? You know, it's like if if this particular project definition was not the one that ended up being um, successful, why do we? 
Um, how do we argue for the study of it? Why do we say, say that it's important? And I think your book is really interesting because when you, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to jump all the way to the end, but, you know, when, when you, you make the argument for how to understand Tano and, you know, and uh, the, the kinds of solutions that Tano offer, the kind of reasons why, for instance, the, the, uh, the ideology of Ujama uh, was so powerful, you basically argue that, the reason why it was so powerful, it was because it was able to sort of contrast and feed itself from what already existed there, which was not entirely something exported into or imported into Africa, but like that had been brewing. So there's there's all these tensions that not only help us understand the success of a particular project of, of the nation, but also its limitations, as you, you rightly say. Um, so. I, I just asked a huge question there for you. So, uh, I'm going to do the unfair thing and let you unravel that. <laughs> yeah, okay. So um, you, the way you started was why study projects that fail? Um, and I think that that is a, is a very you know, important question to, to ask. Um, and I think for me... The reason for asking it is that those projects that fail very rarely go away entirely. Um, And therefore, they're not only helpful in helping us to understand uh, the the active choices that were being made at the time and what was at stake in choosing one path rather than another, but also um, in helping us to understand um, the ways in which those alternative ideas continue to resurface um, and to be articulated in different forms in later periods and, of course, in in our own time um, as well. So I'm quite concrete to to think about more concretely. Um, One of the things that um, I ended up um, doing in the, the book was showing that at the same time as new radical ideas about um, how political society should be organized, which focused on um, equality, um, were becoming increasingly powerful, increasingly popular, um, more conservative ideas um, about um, how to make progress, how to um, reform political society, but to do it in a way which preserved existing hierarchies. Um, Those more conservative ideas were really powerful in the the 40s and 50s. And again, they they don't go away after independence. Um, And I think that matters, um, partly to understand then the the challenges which uh, new nationalist parties faced after independence um, because one of the the, the sort of uh, the problems you referred at the beginning to um, uh, an older more teleological narrative of, uh, of independence in the post-colonial state was um, that if in the nationalist literature uh, nationalist parties seem to have won complete support and carry all before them at independence. Why do they so quickly um, 
either find themselves being opposed, um, being overthrown in some cases, new nationalist leaders, um, or being heavily criticised into having to close down political space to stay in power. Um, and if we better understand the um, the alternative ideas um, that were there in the 50s and which continue to be there in the 60s, but which it's harder for us to see because political space is being closed down and we can't anymore look at um if, if well, there were independent newspapers in the 50s, they, they might not exist in the same way in the, the 1960s. So trying to understand those has, has implications for helping us to understand what comes next, um, both in the immediate aftermath, but also then um, in, in our own time for thinking about the, the multiple possibilities. Um, things were different in the past. They may be different again in the future. And I think that's an important um, contribution which the history, history of political thought um, has to offer. Um, so I think that would, that would be my sort of justification for, for taking those kinds of ideas seriously. Um, and then you asked uh, other questions as well. Um, so, yeah, perhaps we could go yeah. back to some of those. And yeah, we could just break them down. Uh, I mean, one, of yeah. the, one of the interesting questions that I always find um, when, I'm, when I'm trying to, again, sort of think my way through that, you know, writing intellectual history can turn out to be very dry, you know, you're, you're, because it's not, you know, it's not like, like this person is doing this or this person is doing that. You're talking about very abstract, we are talking about very abstract things. Um, I used to read this philosopher, Larry Loudon, who used to say that we basically, when you write the, the history of ideas, you basically, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, what were these ideas in response for? So like a very instrumentalist view. In other words, ideas are trying to solve a problem. Let us see how they, they solve that problem. And I, I, I saw a little bit of that in your book. I mean, there was a point where you asked the question, uh, you were talking about political parties, speci specifically everything, citizens unions and political parties like Tanu, and they say they provided different sorts of answers to the same questions about social change and political authority and, and where it should lie. And I think what is interesting, about, especially about the chronology of your book, is that not only that um, sort of it, it explores that moment of nationalism and mass nationalism, but it actually brings the chronology way back to the moment where independence is not even imminent, you know, where people, you know, we wouldn't typically have brought that um, um, that chronology so far back, uh, especially not in terms of having people just imagine community or imagine, you know, political power or imagine these things. And by showing that um, that these were concerns that existed and that had people had been reflecting and giving answers to these questions way before um, this sort of project of nation had um, existed, uh, it, 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 it sort of allows us to to have a history, you know, to have a, a story, a story that, that we can sort of flesh out. Um, so I guess my question is, you know, how do you think about that? How do you tell a story around ideas? Um, you know, the structure of your book is a good example of how to do that. So I was just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how you thought about the structure of your books. You know, you have chapters where you concentrate on concepts and then chapters where you look at how those concepts sort of play out yeah 
Um, yeah, that's a really, really good question. And yes, absolutely. So one of the things that, that um, I thought it was important to do was to separate out um, nationalism from a much longer and deeper history of political argument. Um, so political thinking doesn't start in 1945, of course. Um, and, uh, and I think I mean, the, the structure of the book, in a sense, um, Oh, well, <laughs> I was going to say it, it kind of constructed itself, but um, it, it also was a very, very long process. Um, I started working on the, as I said, it comes out of a PhD thesis, which um, was finished in 2007-8. And I really started working on the book in about 2009 and, and finished it in 2014. And there were many structures on the way to it becoming this structure. Um, but in saying that it, it wrote itself, um, I there was... I think that you know the first chapter, um, which probably took the longest to uh, research and write, um, was very important for me because I wanted to set up the intellectual context in which the political arguments of the um, 50s and 60s were taking place. Um, and... Um, I needed to do that, I think, to make in order for, for um, well, yeah, in, in in order to make sense for myself partly, but also um, then ultimately for readers of what these political arguments were about. Um, so while chapters four and six, um, in fact, come out of the PhD thesis, um, chapter one. I researched and wrote later of going back and saying, well, what was this intellectual context in which um, they were operating? Um, and um, it's based, uh, the first chapter um, is where I explore the ways in which people are um, debating or thinking about what progress means. Um, and I was struck reading across a, a really a wide kind of corpus of, of printed texts um, from the, the, the 40s and, and 50s, but also um, building on, uh, on what they'd previously done, um, looking at uh, earlier discussions, from the, particularly from the 20s onwards, um, of how central um, arguments around progress were, but also that um, when people were talking about progress, um, they were talking both about the positives of what progress could mean, but also about the dark side, about the the sense that um, things could very easily fall apart, the sense that that there were um, risks, that there were dangers um, at stake in uh, in progress, whatever that might be, um, and. So, um, so drawing that out um, provides really the, the, the foundation for everything that comes next, because then we can see how these sort of core questions um, shape many of the arguments that take place later. Um, and to, to put that in a wider sort of historiographical context, um, when people at the time um, looked at, uh, at these sort of arguments. They, they said, well, it's about a clash between tradition and modernity. Um, and really what, what I found in what I was reading was that um, 
it was never as clear cut as that, um, that um, it sometimes seemed to political actors at the time that uh, a person could be simply put in a box as either somebody who wanted modernity, was in favour of progress, and somebody who was looking to the past. Um, whereas actually, it seemed to me that um, everybody was in the same space of thinking, well, um, how do we make life better? What does progress look like? But also, what are the risks involved? And what are the, some of the ways in which perhaps some of the older social structures um, or social bonds um, might, in fact, be helpful in building that future? Um, but also, what are the, the risks involved um, in uh uh, what are the, the potential risks of society breaking apart um, as, uh, as as social and political and economic change happens? Um, so yeah, so the, the in terms of the, the the structure of the book as a as a whole, um, I think that point about how to make the history of ideas um, readable um, and work as a as a book. And partly for me, the answer to that was to to try to show not only that these ideas mattered in and of themselves, but also that they did have a political import, that we can better understand the politics of the period as well um, by understanding the intellectual history of the period. Um, and so rather than see those as two separate things, um, I wanted to to integrate the, the two together. And so the book is... Um, the, the first three chapters of the book are um, broadly in uh, the approach is, is one of uh, a history of ideas, um, starting by, by setting up the intellectual context of uh, arguments over progress and its, its discontents, really. Um, then thinking about the way that languages of democracy were um, being introduced, but also changing um, in, in a transnational public sphere but also within Tanzania um, in the the um, period immediately after the, the Second World War um, and then in the third chapter trying to understand the way in which um, concepts of representation um, had developed and gained traction over um, the first half of the, the 20th century as you say um, significantly before um, the era of, of mass nationalism um, but it's crucial to understand those new concepts of representation in order to understand what happens um, in the period of mass nationalism but then chapter four tries to um, to say okay well what does this actually mean in practice what does this mean in the case of an, of an actual political movement um, to give the reader that, uh, that 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 concrete sense of sort of ideas in in practice, ideas in action, um, and then similarly, uh, chapter five moves on to to a more um, uh, a more of an intellectual history of thinking about ideas of freedom um, as they travel. Um, but in chapter six, again, we we pin it down in a very concrete case study, um, and then chapter seven a, as, as you said in an earlier question, um, I'm trying to answer some really Kind of perennial questions that, that historians of Tanzania have been asking for a long time, but also historians of, uh, of um, the histories of uh, um, African socialism, um, of histories of um, one-party states in Africa, by saying, well, having seen this intellectual history, now we can better understand how this played out in this case study of, of Tanzania. Um, so that's why it took the form it, it did, um, and, and I hope it, it therefore managed to be um, a, a readable 
um, story that uh, that readers could um, could yeah uh, could hopefully find uh, find interesting and uh, and um, I, and and see the arc of the argument as it as it develops over the uh, two hundred or so pages. <laughs> Well, it is very readable, so <laughs> definitely. Um, it is a, a very good model. Um, the other thing that I thought it was very interesting in the text and is when you compare it again with other sort of narratives of um, sort of the development of politics and political thought in, in, in particular during the nationalist period, is that there's, there's a number of tensions here which are very well explained, and I'm going to ask you to um, first to explain a little bit, um, how do you negotiate it? Uh, why do you feel, for instance, that it was important to talk about, uh, not just about the local context in which these concepts developed, but also the transnational elements that sort of fed into that development and, and were fed in, in turn by those developments? Uh, so that would be the first question. But then the second question is what is not, we, we don't find in your book, which I think is really interesting, and I'm, I, I would like you to explain how you managed to Pull this one is um, there's no debates about well this is what the colonized people were doing and this is how the colonial people were responding you know and I think part of that has to do as you explain in the book with the very particular history of colonialism in Tanzania you know there's there's no um, that distinction it makes no sense in many other parts of Africa but it makes even less sense in the Tanzanian context. Um, but uh, but there's also like a, a way of sidestepping that um, sort of that debate, you know, uh, and, and I wonder if, if you could explain to us how you managed to do that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, both really, really good and uh, and uh, big questions. Um, okay, why the the local and the international? Um, because you can't understand it without both is the the short answer, I think. Um, as you indicated, there are sort of oddities of the, the Tanzanian um, case that make the international particularly important. Um, and that's uh, the fact that after the First World War, Tanganyika became a League of Nations mandate. Um, and then uh, after the Second World War, a United Nations trusteeship territory. And so in the period that I'm looking at um, in the book, which mainly is, is not entirely, but mainly is focusing on the period after uh, 1945, um, Tanzania is, uh, mainland Tanzania's future is being discussed at the United Nations. Um, and so global arguments, uh, transnational arguments um, about um, what uh, what kind of political system um, should develop in, in Tanzania um, are helping to shape what in fact happens um, on the ground. And Tanzanians are engaging with those arguments to some extent. Um, Nyerere speaks at the UN, um, other um, political actors speak at the UN as well. Um, but these are also tied up with um, other ideas. Uh, um, in one of the chapters, I talk about a, a clash in the trusteeship council between um, Soviet representative um, and the um, British representative of very different ideas about what democracy means, <laughs> understandably. Um, but I also um, was struck and, um, and, uh, and I think it's really important to, to, uh, to see both the um, the ways in which debates in Tanzania 
echo debates in other parts of the world. Um, and I think sometimes in African studies, we uh, we focus on Africa um, to the exclusion of other parallel um, cases elsewhere in the world. And um, this book was shaped not just by my own um, uh, work in uh, in African history, but also by the fact that I've um, I was teaching at the time I was writing the book. I was teaching very broad um, imperial and global history courses, um, and so reading about um, the the same period and politics in uh, Southeast Asia, in the Middle East, and South Asia, and one can't help but be struck by the ways in which um, similar arguments are playing out um, and similar uh, ideas are being employed. Um, but equally, uh, as you said at the beginning, um, we can't understand, as I see it, um, the political thought uh, of Tanzania um, purely as the imposition of external ideas. Um, ideas are uh, forged in in dialogue and um, uh, and in ways which draw on older ideas from within uh, Tanzania, as well as um, from uh, wider debates which are taking place, which Tanzanians are a part of. Um, so I think that's 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 why um, it, it uh, was one of the things that I, I wanted to bring out very clearly was. Um, the the dialogue between the the local and the global um an original title of this book was um languages of freedom making tanzanian political society in an international age and i think that captures something about it that, that um it was forged in that um in that uh um context um and in that dialogue um and then the, the second question you raise again is a very important one um Tanzania's, uh, uh, as you say, is, is a slightly unusual case, um, and the one of the things which struck me and which I, I, I thought it was important to bring out um, was that debates taking place in the Swahili language. Um, were debates in which colonial officials could and did um, contribute um, as much as African writers and uh, and authors. Um, and I think that it's important to recognise that um, and to think about what that means. So, as I said right at the, the beginning, um, my initial thought when I found, went to Tanzania and found that there wasn't an independent African press, I thought, well, that means I can't do anything with this, that, that actually um, I don't have the sources um, in newspaper, in terms of newspapers and protocols, to do what I want to do. Um, but actually, of course, um, that speaks to the way in which um, discussions uh, were not um, in, in the, the wider Swahili from public sphere. Um, discussions did involve both um, colonizers and colonized. And, and I think we need to, to think about that and to recognize that um, rather than um, think of Swahili language newspapers as a as a sort of autonomous space of African thought, um, 
political thinking was entangled. It was shaped by the power dynamics of the colonial relationship. And, and we need to try to understand that. Um, but I think there's, uh, and the, so the choice I made in, in that book was to approach it in that way. I think the challenge, though, is how do we do that in a way that makes clear the realities of those power dynamics? Um, as I've said already, um, this space was a tightly controlled space. It was a censored space. Um, so what we are seeing here is shaped by that context. Um, and what we certainly, what I, what I hope, um, um, what I hope we can um, do is to, to show that um, these was a highly unequal, um, segmented society, um, even as political ideas were worked through um, in what was uh, linguistically and structurally a, a shared space. So, yeah, that that I think is a real challenge, um, uh, and. Um, you know, whether, uh, whether I, I was reading through the, the book again today and, um, I was, I found myself wondering whether, um, more needed to be said, um, about the, the colonial context broadly, um, and, and what that meant. Um, and perhaps if I was to, to revisit the book now, I would, I would try to bring that out a bit, bit more clearly. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I think, um, approaching it in, in that way helps us better understand the, 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 what kind of space this was, essentially. Yeah, no, and and I think one of the the uh, the more rich parts of the book is that it allows us to um, think of that uh, space, as you call it, as a much more complicated space than this sort of bifurcated. Uh, uh, like you mentioned, I mean, I don't think at any point there is a sense that. Uh, you know, I mean, in a way, if if the problem of African historians or if like the guiding principle of Africanism, uh, Africanists uh, historiography has always been this issue of agency. I mean, I, I don't think that that is sort of trivialized at all. Um, uh, on, the, on the contrary, you know, it's 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 sort of expressed, it, it, particularly going back to sort of the initial question, the fact that there is. An inequality inherent in, in 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 the space in which these ideas are being debated, in no way minimizes um, the relevance of said ideas at the time for the people who were debating them, and and I think that's um, that comes about really well in in mm. the text. Absolutely, and and these ideas, of course, continue to shape the political structures um, that are in place today. Um, and and one of the challenges is is to understand how they were they were they were grounded in that period. Um, and uh, again, it, it sort of goes back to that point that you made right at the beginning that um, if we can't see it simply as something imposed from outside, we have to see it as something which is forged in a in a particular context. Um, one last question, and, and I think this goes back a little bit to this, this last point that you're making. Uh, I think ultimately what one of the central questions that uh, these individuals were asking themselves is how do we live together? So I think even before the question of 
how do we get rid of colonialism <laughs> is the question of, you know, how do we live together? How do we think of ourselves as a community? Uh, and I think to the extent that we can record those debates and those ideas, like you said, they they have a much better chance of coming back and of people looking back at their own intellectual histories and said, hey, we've thought about this for a longer time and here's some ideas that we used to have. Do you see that um, in present or in, in the sort of like the, the kind of intellectual discourse that has followed, um, you know, independence? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, as you say, the, the question, um, how do we live together? Um, which is something which which uh, you know, all societies ask at at all times. Yeah. Um, and Tanzania's history since independence, um, in many ways, we still um, <clears throat> are, are living with the legacies of, uh, of of some of what happened in that period. Um, Tanzania's still um, the, the ruling party in, in Tanzania is CCM, which was the uh, successor of the Nationalist Party, Tanu, that's the, the focus um, uh, in, in parts of, uh, of my book. Um, and so the arguments that were, um, that were put forward um, around um, why have one party democracy remained powerful up till uh, up, actually up till until um, the 1980s and, uh, and and we see uh, iterations of them a similar sort of, uh, of arguments indeed going on today even in the era of, of multi-partyism um, and this the, the the questions around um, what do we what does progress look like and and what do we um, and what are the risks um to society um again of course these are these are questions that uh, all societies continue to continue to ask um so yeah i think um i mean what uh, the the i think as uh, in tanzania um at the moment um is uh, as it has been for a long time, um, debating um, how, you know what um, what the future might hold, and um, we we see people people have written about the way in which uh, Nyerere's ideas, and particularly the kind of um, the, uh, the the moral content of Nyerere's ideas, have remained incredibly powerful. And it's interesting that this has been a resource. Which um, both the ruling party CCM and other parties within Tanzania have drawn on that Nyerere has sort of ceased to be the, the property of, of any one party. And I think one of the things, although Nyerere doesn't feature as, as heavily in my book as uh, as he has done in some accounts uh, of the period, um, so Julius Nyerere was the, the leader of Tanu and the, the first president of Tanzania. Um, nevertheless. Um, what I try to do in the book is to put him in the context of the wider debates that were going on um, and, and suggest some of the ways in which he provided a compelling answer to the, the challenges um, people faced. Um, so in the way that his name is, uh, is, is recalled and his ideas continue to um, be discussed in, in public debate in Tanzania, I think we see some of the legacies of, uh, of, of this period, perhaps. Well, wow. wonderful. Thank you for that book. It was a uh, really pleasure to read it. Uh, and so, Dr. Hunter, I think we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, could you tell us what you're working on uh, right now? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so um, one of the um, places where the book ends is uh, with um, a reminder that the voices that we hear in this book are those of people who are literate, who are writing in newspapers um, and uh, periodicals, um, as well as in other textual forms, but and who are engaging with global ideas, who are um, engaging with a, a, a with the world, um, but they often themselves are not travelling. Um, and I was been struck by the ways in which, when um, historians have approached. Uh, global history from East Africa, they've often focused on uh, mobile people, people who are who are moving. Um, but through a focus on text, we can get at um, others who are engaging with the world through print, but who are not themselves physically moving. So um, one of the, the projects that I'm working on at the moment um, is in some ways engaging with the themes of this book, and um, but and adopting similar approaches to what I've done before, but, but taking a slightly different direction. So it's a collaborative project um, with Dan Branch, he's a historian of Kenya, um, University of Warwick, uh, Jess McCann, who's a historian of uh, 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 India-African relations at the University of of York, Um, Ismay Milford, who's uh, just finished a PhD in African and Global Intellectual History at the um, EUI in Florence, Um, and Daniel Heathcote and Anna Dima, who are um, doctoral students in the project. Um, And the project's got another world, East Africa and the global 1960s. And what we're trying to do is to understand why it was that the um, cosmopolitan connections of the, the 40s and 50s are, um, to some extent, to some extent, break down and um, across the region are replaced with an introverted nationalism in the, the later 60s and into the 70s. Um, and so we're trying to think about globalization from East Africa um, and the ways in which globalization can go backwards as well as forwards, can, can break apart. Um, and we're doing it in a similar way to the way that I've done it in this book through a focus on uh, on texts and print and textual cultures and, and a focus on ideas um, rather than politics and, and economics. So it's a four-year project. We just started in September, um, but it's very exciting. And it's really exciting to be working uh, as part of a team um, uh, with everyone bringing slightly different uh, different uh, expertise, different forms of expertise and, and different skills to the project. Um, so I hope um, that that will go in, in some interesting directions and be able to help us rethink uh, global history from East Africa in the years ahead. Well, that sounds like a great project and a, a very relevant one if we are to think about those like ebbs and flows of um, globalization. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I want to thank you very much for being on, on the podcast today. I really enjoyed it. I hope uh, you did so too. Um, so take care and thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks.